If you have a Bible with you, then please turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, to the fifth chapter, and we will read the first 11 verses. Allow me to express my gratitude to your minister and his fellow elders for their invitation to come and minister God's word here in IPC. It's always a delight for me to be here with you. If you'll allow me just gently to correct Evan in his introduction, he said I was originally from Scotland. I am always from Scotland. (laughs) Wherever I am in this world, I take Scotland with me. It said you can take the boy out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out of the boy. Paul's letter to the Romans is where he most magnificently and most elaborately explains to us what he calls in the opening verse of this book, the gospel of God. Paul seeks to show us why we need this gospel of God, this good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, he he explores the universality of our need of what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And then from verse 21 of chapter 3, really through to the end of chapter 4, Paul explains to us how we can become savingly connected to Jesus Christ. And to the astonishment of the ancient world and to every corner of the world throughout the ages, Paul shows us that we become savingly connected to Jesus Christ not by doing anything in our own strength, but by trusting alone in what Jesus Christ has done for us by his sinless life, by his sin-atoning death, and by his glorious rising from the dead. By faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, We are reconciled to God. And now from the opening verse of chapter 5, Paul begins to explore the riches, the blessings that come to us through our faith union with Jesus Christ. He wants to establish this church in Rome that he hopes to visit And that he hopes will then send him out to Spain, as we discover in chapter 15. He wants to establish this church in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know how gloriously, how expansively, in Christ, God has blessed us. And these opening verses in chapter 5 take us to the very heart of the blessedness 
that belongs to those who by faith alone have become savingly connected to Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If someone were to ask you as you leave this church this morning, tell me, please, what can I expect if I put my trust and hope alone in Jesus Christ to make me right with God? I wonder what your instinctive answer would be. I think my instinctive answer would be in the words we read in verse 1 of chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian believer, you no longer are at enmity with God, but even more gloriously, he is no longer at enmity with you. He has brought you into peace with him, living peace, present peace, eternal peace. And that would be gloriously true, wouldn't it? But if we were to read the New Testament carefully, we would quickly discover that if someone asked, for example, the Apostle Paul, 
What can I expect if I put my hope and trust alone in Jesus Christ to reconcile me to God? I would think he would say to them, absolutely, you will have peace with God, but, but, with that peace with God will come trouble and trial and difficulty and disappointment and suffering. The New Testament is always concerned that would-be believers rightly understand what it will mean for them to become followers of Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus Christ gathered his disciples around him in the upper room, John chapters 14 through 17, he is preparing them for his leaving them. They are distressed, they are troubled. Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know perhaps the verse as well, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But thereafter, Jesus, step by step, impresses on these men what it will mean for them in a fallen, godless world to be his disciples. He says to them in the end of chapter 16, in this world you will have tribulations, not that you may have or conceivably occasionally will encounter. In this world, you will have tribulations. He tells them earlier in chapter 15, if the world has hated me, be sure of this, it will hate you also. When someone becomes a Christian, they enter into a cosmic conflict. Remember how at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul enumerates the whole armor of God that God's people need in order just to stand and having done all to continue standing. And the New Testament is full of martial metaphors. Fight the good fight of the faith. Paul tells Timothy, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The scriptures are very clear that if we are to belong to Jesus Christ, we can expect trouble and difficulty and trial. But in the midst of his teaching in the upper room discourse, John 14 through 17, Jesus says something very striking to his disciples. He says to them, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He wants them to know that the Christian life, yes, it's going to be a hard life. There's going to be trouble and difficulty and hostility, inescapable hostility. But in the midst of it, he tells them, my joy will be in you 
and that your joy may be full. He wants them to understand that that joy belongs to the very heart of the Christian life. It may be often an embattled joy, a suffering joy, but joy will be an inevitable feature in the life of everyone who has become savingly united and connected to Jesus Christ. And if you followed the reading in Romans 5 carefully, you will have noticed that three times in those verses, Paul speaks about the believer's joy. He says in verse 2 that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, following verse, we rejoice in our sufferings. And then climactically in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is beginning to highlight and unpack the the privileges, the blessings, the riches that are the possession of everyone who has come to Jesus Christ. Over the past months, there hasn't been a day, I don't think, when I have not pondered these words of John Owen, the great English pastor, theologian. He said, unacquaintedness with our mercies is our trouble as well as our sin. Unacquaintedness with our mercies is our trouble as well as our sin. If I were to ask you this morning, what do you think most hinders you from being the Christian you long to be and that God calls you to be, what would your answer be? Well, for John Owen, the Puritan, indeed for for all the great thinkers and teachers in the Christian church throughout the ages, the answer would be this. The greatest hindrance in our lives is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. And here in these Verses Romans 5, 1 through 11, Paul focuses upon the glorious privileges that are the possession of every Christian believer. He's not speaking here about an elite company of believers. He's not speaking about those who have reached a certain level of sanctification. He is speaking to the church of God in its entirety, to the weakest, the frailest, as well as the strongest. I want to notice two things with you. The first, very briefly, focusing on the source, the source of our joy in Christ. And then secondly, and a little more at length, on the substance 
of our joy in Christ. Notice in the opening verse Paul's great words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified, made right with God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is the foundational blessing of the gospel. This is our greatest need. In Jesus Christ, God restores us to himself, reconciles us to himself, makes us right with himself. And this is the very foundation stone of our joy. No longer is God against me. No longer do I face the dread prospect of a lost and a ruined and a godless eternity. God is now for me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And this is the very foundation stone of the Christian believer's joy. Nothing can take that from us. Nothing and no one can rob us of our standing before God because it is through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. I can no more fall from my justification before God than Jesus Christ himself can fall from his justification before his heavenly Father. His righteousness becomes our righteousness when we place our hope and trust alone in him. And this is the foundation of our joy. No matter what touches our life, what heartbreaks, what heartaches, what sorrows, what trials, what sufferings, what disappointments. If we have put our hope and trust alone in Jesus Christ, we are the most blessed beings on the face of this planet. And this is the source of our joy. Theology. What God has done in his son, Jesus Christ is the very source of all the blessings that come to us from God in the gospel. But secondly, I want to notice at some greater length the substance of our joy. If the source of our joy is that we are savingly united to Jesus Christ and are thereby, by faith alone, justified, made right with God. What is the substance of that joy? How does it explicate itself? Well, Paul tells us in three glorious phrases. He says, we rejoice, verse 2, in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice staggeringly even in our sufferings, and then thirdly and climactically, he says we rejoice in God. Consider the first of these with me. Through him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Now, you'll understand, I'm sure, that when the New Testament uses the word hope, it's not thinking of something unsure and uncertain. For example, you might hope that Georgia Tech might beat Georgia or even the Crimson Tide, but it's a vain hope. Um, you, you, you would love it to happen, but ordinarily it's not going to happen. Now, that's not what the New Testament understands by hope. Hope is something sure and certain. Hope is something that is sure and certain, but we have not yet entered into the fullness of it. And Paul writes, we rejoice in hope. Of what? Of the glory of God. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, you need to go back a couple of chapters. Chapter 3, verse 23. Where Paul has written, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Now, I would guess if, if most of us had to complete that sentence and we didn't know how the Apostle Paul had completed it, we would have said, all have sinned and fall short of the law of God. And that's true. But the greater tragedy is not that through sin we fall short of the law of God, but that by our sin we fall short of the glory of God. In fact, I think there may well be a better way to translate the verb. The verb here, fall short, is, is used in... Um, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, and you remember what Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, is the same verb, husteruntai, one thing you lack. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Sin has robbed us of the glory of God. But now in Christ, because we have been justified by his grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. We rejoice in what? In the restoration to us of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is the outshining of all that God is. In the context that speaks to us of being in living fellowship with him, enjoying his smile upon our lives, having the sure and certain prospect of beholding one day his glory revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice because presently we have become partakers of that glory through the gospel, we now have communion with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We have his smile, his fatherly smile resting upon us. And one day, one day, we will no longer see through a glass darkly. And hope will give way to sight. And we can rejoice 
whatever condition we find ourselves in this morning, if we are found in Jesus Christ, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's staggering. The gospel comes not simply to forgive us, not simply to restore us and reconcile us, but to bring us into the very presence of the God of glory. And Paul says we rejoice. We can rejoice in that. But then he says, quite staggeringly, I think, more than that, more than that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. It's as if Paul is climbing a ladder. The first step, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now if Paul had stopped there, we would simply have thought, he's a masochist. Who in their right mind rejoices in sufferings? No one. You have to be out of your mind to rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings, he says, knowing. Now notice the verb, not feeling, but knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, says Paul, not because we enjoy pain, but because we know that God is at work in our sufferings to produce in us graces that could not otherwise be produced. One of the most remarkable verses, I think, in the whole Bible is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where we read of our Lord Jesus Christ that he was made perfect through suffering. Not that he was ever imperfect, but that he reached the omega point of developmental perfection in his holy humanity through suffering. He didn't cruise to glory. He didn't float above the grime and the dust and the squalor of this world. He was made perfect through suffering. It was in the crucible of afflictions that our Savior was brought to develop mental perfection in his holy humanity. And what Paul is saying here, and we don't really have time to, to unpack the, the, the various components in the, ver in the verse, but he's saying essentially this, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know, we know, we know what? That in the midst of them, the God who is for us in Christ, who has justified us by his grace, who so loved us that he gave his only begotten son for us, he is going to work in the midst of those sufferings 
to make us the people that he has called us and saved us to be. Through our sufferings, he's going to work in us endurance, character, and hope. Now, that isn't inevitable. Because when suffering touches our lives, in whatever form it touches our lives, there is the temptation that we become bitter with God. That we become distant from him. That we begin to question him. That we begin to express our unhappiness with him. Why has this happened? Surely if you loved me, you would not have brought this into my life. Because nothing touches our lives tangentially, but that they are purposed in the sovereign, inscrutable, ever-wise, holy, good, and perfect will of God. But what enables God, as it were, to use our sufferings to be productive in our lives is that we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, that we say ultimately with Job, it is the Lord. Blessed be his name. You see, we're not expected to understand God's ways with us, are we? Remember Isaiah 55, your, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your, your ways transcend our ways. In fact, Isaiah is so bewildered with God and his ways that he writes in chapter 45, Truly, you are a God who hides himself. Martin Luther used the phrase, Deus absconditus. God has left us. He's abandoned us. God has absconded because we cannot fathom his ways with us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But here's the thing, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the great thing. He is the Father who spared not his only Son for us. He is the Father who was willing to give his only begotten Son to become sin for us and to be a curse for us, that we might be restored to him and become his children. And in the midst of the, the sufferings of life, the unexpected trials and troubles and perplexities and bewilderments, God is all the while saying, my child, trust me, trust me. When I was a little boy, we didn't have a washing machine. There were washing machines, but you only heard they existed in America, not in the east end of Glasgow. And I remember my mother on wash day, you had a wash day, I think ours was Thursday. So you wore a shirt for however many days. I remember my mother taking the shirts, my school shirts, and scrubbing them. She would put them in the ringer, scrub them, and she had a washboard, and she would rub it against the washboard. The shirts didn't become clean by just looking at them. 
and willing them to be clean. The shirts had to suffer to become clean. They had to endure rubbing. So often in our lives, the Lord seeks, because his ultimate purpose is to conform us to the likeness of his Son, the Lord brings us into trials and troubles and sorrows to rub our lives, to sanctify us. And so Paul says we can even rejoice in sufferings, and that's bewildering to the world, isn't it? I'm regularly asked when I speak at various places, what do you think is the first thing you're going to say to the Lord when you find yourselves beholding his glory? Well, who knows? But I would like to think I would say this. Lord, you did all things well. You did all things well. Through my tears and Through my perplexities and through my sadnesses, you were working according to your vast, eternal plan to conform me to the likeness of your Son. But then thirdly, and this is climactic actually, he's going up another step, verse 11. More than that, you think, well, what on earth could be more than that? More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the hope of the glory of God, glorious though that be. Not even in the sufferings that God uses to renew and remake us into the likeness of his Son. Ultimately and climactically, the Christian's joy is in God himself. A few months ago, our oldest child, David, he's a corporate lawyer in London, was headhunted. He was offered or was in the process of being offered a partnership in an international legal firm in London. And he had a final interview with the, the partners. And the first question he was asked was this, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I said, well, what did you say, David? He said, well, I thought initially of saying my three children get me out of bed in the morning. (laughs) He said, but I thought, no, I'm going to tell them what gets me out of bed in the morning. He said, what gets me out of bed in the morning is the glory of God and my three children. When he told me that, my heart leapt. The ultimate joy for the Christian believer is God. You know, someone were to ask you this morning as you leave this place, as you travel home, what is it that makes you happy? What a great test. God makes me happy. Well, what does that mean? What an opening to share the gospel. God makes you happy. What is it about God that makes you happy? Everything. That he is infinite and eternal. That he is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, knowledge, goodness, justice and truth. 
and that he is who he is. Does the isness of God make you happy? In John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, Book 1, Chapter 13, Section 17, he's writing on the Holy Trinity. And he says these words of Gregory, Gregory Nazianzen, late 4th century Greek church father, these words of Gregory vastly delight me. Now, Calvin is not your normal effusive Frenchman. Calvin's quite a tightly buttoned up Frenchman. He, He doesn't give much away. And so whenever he writes, and that's the only place I've come across Calvin ever saying he was vastly delighted in anything, What is it about Gregory's words that vastly delighted Calvin? Well, Calvin's quoting three lines of Gregory's baptismal oration 40, section 41. He's preparing a young man for baptism. And he says to the young man, I have to paraphrase, I know little bits of it, but bear with the paraphrase. He says, young man, I want to talk to you about God. I want to talk to you about his oneness and his threeness. His threeness and his oneness. The three cannot be separated from the one, and the one cannot be separated from the three. He is one undivided torch, but I need to stop now and bow down and worship because my heart is full and tears fill my eyes. I remember reading that years ago for the first time and thinking, Ian, when were you last overwhelmed by the wonder of the triunity of the God you worship? It's a commonplace, isn't it? God is one, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. You have it emblazoned gloriously outside your building. Gregory was overwhelmed by who God is. Remember when Moses is being sent by God, I should be closing now, forgive me, to Egypt, and Moses says, but when I go, and they say, well, who sent you, Moses? What am I to say? And God says to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. Do you ever think about the I amness of God? Paul says we rejoice in God. We rejoice in who He is. We rejoice in that He loves us with an everlasting love. We rejoice in what He's done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He will yet do for us. We rejoice in God. But maybe here this morning you're thinking, well, Ian, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But my life is enshrouded with darkness and sadness. There was a man in the Bible who said, my life is a waste of space. It has amounted to nothing. Do you know who said that? Did anyone think I know who said that. 
Jesus Christ said that. Anyone willing to put their hand up and say, you think, did Jesus Christ say that? My life is a waste of space. It's amounted to nothing. Absolutely. Second servant song in Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 4. In his holy, sinless humanity, he experienced darkness and suffering. But you know the next words. My life has been a waste of space. It's amounted to nothing, yet my trust is in the Lord. Even if your life seems full of vanity, you can't make sense of God's ways. Trust in the Lord who loves you, who spared not his only son for you, who will one day bring you into his nearer presence and explain everything. May God bless to us his word.